Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I will be your host for this episode. This is going to be a little bit of a shorter episode. Uh, been kind of under the weather all week, uh, not feeling the best and uh, having some work done on the outside of my house which is creating a lot of noise during the day. So I'm going to try to get through this episode and get it out today as uh, easily as possible if I can. Um, But yeah, just keep in mind it'll be a little bit shorter episode. We're setting up to go back to Wisconsin tomorrow for a flyover country episode. And then we will be diving into a a rather big case next week. So I'll try to keep these as one-part episodes for today and tomorrow so that we can get into a, a big episode next week. So if you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast and a thank-you message from the host. Finally, for no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much. Without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. In 1851, a group of travelers made an epic journey from Illinois to the area that would become Seattle, Washington. They traveled overland to Portland, Oregon, and then loaded onto a schooner to make the trip up the coast and land at Alki Point, a landmass that protrudes into Puget Sound. The settlers eventually established a permanent living area in Elliott Bay in 1852 and named their settlement Seattle after the local Native American tribe leader Chief Seattle, a chief of the local Duwamish and Suquamish tribes. Chief Seattle was an extremely intelligent leader who welcomed the white settlers. This may have been in part because his tribe was losing a war with a rival tribe named the Snohomish but spoke openly about his desires for ecological harmony and land preservation. In 1858, other Native American tribes, upset by the growing settlement, led an attack on Elliott Bay. The engagement would be known as the Battle of Seattle, and Chief Seattle and his tribe avoided any involvement in the conflict. Two white settlers died in the attack, one by friendly fire, and the Native Americans suffered an untold number of casualties. The settlers had been backed by a warship and U.S. Marines that had docked in Puget Sound. The cannons from the ship had taken a toll on the Native American warriors, and although one of the warring chiefs stated he would return with 20,000 more warriors and overrun the settlement, no second attack ever occurred. Twenty Native American warriors and one of their leaders had been captured during the battle, but a court-martial trial for the men found that they had participated in a legal battle with armed militia and they were released as part of a peace treaty. The area of Seattle would not see warfare again, but would grow quickly thanks to a successful and profitable lumber industry in the late 1800s. And then around the turn of the century, it boomed as people from the lower United States flocked to Seattle as their last civilized stop before heading off and seeking gold in the Klondike. More growth occurred during World War II as Boeing set up a major airline manufacturing plant and Seattle's port grew in size and operation. And today, Seattle has a population of 750,000 people with its entire metropolitan area combining for over 4 million residents. One of those residents, a nurse and mother of three young children, was just starting her life over after a recent divorce when she became the victim of a grisly murder that shocked the area, the nation, and the world. 
Ingrid Marie Roundsville was born on August 2, 1975 in Renton, Washington. She graduated from high school in Arizona in 1993 and went on to get a bachelor's in nursing from the University of Arizona in 1997. Ingrid met and married a man named Philip Line. In 2000, she moved to Washington and the couple welcomed three children during their marriage. In 2014, Philip and her obtained a divorce, but by all that I could read, they had an amicable split and shared custody of their three children. Ingrid was a nurse at Seattle's Swedish Medical Center, working full-time and also raising her children when it was her time to have custody. In her off time, she explored online dating, and in March of 2016, she met a man named John Charlton. They had been on some dates over the course of a month, and on April 8th, 2016, Ingrid and John attended a Seattle Mariners professional baseball game together. The following morning, Ingrid's ex-husband Philip arrived to drop off the kids with their mother. The following morning, Ingrid's ex-husband Philip arrived to drop off the kids with their mother. Ingrid didn't answer the door and Philip grew worried and contacted her mother, Jorga Bass. Jorga responded to the residence with a set of keys to unlock the door. They went inside and found Ingrid's wallet, cell phone, and other items in the home. Missing was Ingrid, her, her vehicle keys, and her vehicle. Yorga and Ingrid shared a cell phone account, and Yorga began looking through the recent cell phone logs to see who Ingrid may have texted or called the evening before. She found several contacts between her daughter and a specific number with a Montana area code, and reached out to that number for more information. She soon learned the number belonged to John Charlton, the man her daughter had been going on dates with for a month. John responded to Jorga's text at first, stating he was confused why they were texting him because he was under the understanding that Ingrid had her kids that day. He would admit to going to a baseball game the previous evening, but stated he didn't stay the night with Ingrid because her kids were getting dropped off the next morning. Jorga told John that they needed him to cooperate with a police investigation, as it was likely he was the last known person to see Ingrid. After sending him that text, Jorga never heard from John again via text. With fear and suspicion mounting, Jorga notified the Renton Police Department. Renton is a large suburb outside of Seattle and has roughly 130 sworn officers. The police department responded to Ingrid's home and located blood, human tissue, and a bloody 15-inch pruning saw in Ingrid's bathroom. An alert was put out on Ingrid's vehicle, and the family and officers must have feared the worst. So we'll take an aside here just to cover some of the stuff that we've talked about so far. The The research on this case is actually rather thin when it comes to information and details. There are a lot of articles online about this case. However, they all have the same information. And oftentimes when a police department has a major crime like this, they'll release what's called a press release, and it will include information the investigators and the police department are comfortable sharing with the public um, a lot of the times in a case where either somebody's missing or it's an ongoing investigation they'll keep a lot of the stuff that's very pertinent to the case uh, close to them uh, but they'll release enough information to the press to kind of at least let the general public know what's going on and so based on what i read in those articles the fact that a lot of the verbiage was pretty much the same amongst the different media outlets i assume that they 
took most of their information from some form of press release from the Renton Police Department at this point. And what we have here is obviously a missing mother. Now, when they first arrive, they could have thought, I guess, that maybe Ingrid just, you know, she went out on a date. Maybe she stayed the night at the guy's place and just hadn't gotten up yet. But just as we talked about in a couple of these other missing person cases, it's not what the person always brings with them. It's what the person leaves behind. Now, in this case, this is different than, say, the the Watts case because the car and the vehicle keys are missing. So you could, at initial value, I guess, maybe think, okay, she just ran to grab something and forgot her cell phone and wallet. Or, again, she went somewhere the previous evening, was in a rush, forgot her stuff, but the fact that her vehicle's gone means that she could be gone and there's maybe some type of explanation for it. Um, in the other cases we've talked about when the vehicle's still there, the vehicle keys are still there, wallet, cell phone, everything's still there, but the person's missing, a lot of the times that's more cause for alarm because you know, short of her going for a run or a walk, people aren't gonna leave all of their the stuff they need to transport themselves from one spot to another or anything behind. So. They're already concerned because of what they're seeing in the home. And I'm guessing just based on how the articles were written that the family themselves did not go into the bathroom to see this this bloody scene in the bathroom. I think things would have been a little different in the conversations and text messages and just how things were communicated to the police. So I think the family just kind of ducked their head in there, saw she wasn't around and her wallet and cell phone were there and they just kind of took a step back out of the house and said you know we need to let the police handle this and i'm hoping that's how that went down because i can't imagine either being the ex-husband or the mother and even though they're exes as i said i think that they had a pretty amicable relationship still with the co-parenting i can't imagine going into the bathroom of my ex and seeing you know blood and and uh, a saw and all that kind of stuff in the bathroom that'd be pretty traumatic so as i said it's at this point in the investigation what they have is a missing person they've identified this man that she's dating now what was interesting is and as we'll find out there's probably good reason for this uh ingrid hadn't told a lot of her family about this other guy she hadn't told her mom which is why her mom had to reach out via text to this number she didn't know that she was dating this guy and again there's a very good reason for this uh, that we'll get into but this is kind of one of those times where somebody has to play catch up real quick and get information about uh, parts of a missing person's life without that person being around to get that information now they were lucky in this case because uh, Ingrid and her mother shared this phone account, so it was pretty quick they were able to, to get in contact with this number that was showed up for the last month in her phone. But other times it can take a little bit longer. You can't ping the phone be to try to find out where Ingrid's at because the phone is in the house and Ingrid's obviously not there. So the the investigators caught a couple breaks early on in this case, but 
at the same time they have this missing person with this bloody bathroom and they have to be as, as I mentioned assuming the worst and around this time uh, that, that she was reported missing a homeowner about 10 miles away in Seattle uh, proper had located several body parts in the recycling bin the body parts included a severed head leg foot and arm and the trash bag the body parts were in would eventually be identical to bags located in Ingrid's home and in that, ba that bloody bathroom. And due to the condition of the body parts, it was not immediately linked to Ingrid's missing persons report. And again, this is very similar to the area that I worked in, in that I worked in a larger suburb of the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. And so if I took a missing persons report from somebody in the town or the city that I worked for and then inside of Minneapolis they had they discovered body parts it it's not as if there's going to be an immediate link because Minneapolis being combined Minneapolis St. Paul about the same size as Seattle itself and so is the it's a very similar metropolitan area in terms of population there's so many large suburbs around Minneapolis St. Paul and Minneapolis is such a large city in itself that a single missing persons report out of one of the largest suburbs is not immediately going to be linked to body parts found in, in, in a major city. So there's going to be a little bit of a time delay in, in figuring out that the two cases are linked. And so as a result of that, th this she was went missing on a Saturday morning. Uh, is when she was reported missing and by Sunday evening friends and family started a social media campaign to raise awareness for Ingrid's story and this is obviously something that we are seeing more and more into the late 20 teens and the early 2020s where if a person goes missing or there's uh, some type of a social media campaign that's that's formed by the family and and friends and like and very soon especially with these missing persons i know we just had one out of minnesota um unfortunately the the end result is usually some type of a homicidal violence um, situation but you'll you'll see these either on the news or in social media feeds where friends are sharing you know, please locate this person there's some type of a missing person's poster that's being shared on instagram and facebook and and whatnot because it's the easy way to get awareness out there to get that person's picture and story in front of people and in front of a lot of people in a short amount of time now a few days later more body parts would be located by a waste worker that was emptying bins a few blocks away from the initial discovery of the original body parts these body parts as well as the ones found on the previous Saturday would be identified as the remains of Ingrid by Wednesday, which was five days after she was reported missing. And if I had to venture a guess that the details of this were not in any of the, the re, uh, research I did, but my guess is that within a couple days, they probably had a pretty good idea that Ingrid was the person whose body parts they were finding in these recycling bins and stuff. But by the time they figured this out, which was probably somewhere around Monday, I know it said in the research that they did compare a, a picture of Ingrid to the the head that they located, and 
that they had a match via that, but I'm assuming you never really do a match or, or tell a family, uh, do a death notification for a family until you're 100% sure. And usually DNA in a homicide case takes about 48 hours to come back. So my guess is that they also did a DNA analysis uh, between, you know, they might have grabbed a toothbrush or a hairbrush or something like that from Ingrid's house and got a DNA profile to compare to the DNA from the body parts. And once they were 100% sure, they call uh, it a match. And now she's gone from a missing person to a victim of homicidal violence. This actually, apparently, just reading the source material and seeing some of the photos, the fact that it was in two different recycling bins, and these were like pers people's personal recycling bins that they put out on the curb where these body parts were being found. There was a time period then when it looked like Seattle officers were kind of searching all of the bins in a, in a person's uh, neighborhood. And I just can't imagine whether you're a homeowner or the police officer opening those recycling bins and just worried that what you're going to see inside when you do that. And then as officers are doing this, they also asked homeowners to check their security cameras and doorbell cameras to see if there was anybody dumping the body parts captured on camera. And this is kind of important because where the these body parts are dumped, like I said, they're not dumpsters behind a closed business or anything like that these are people's personal recycling bins well those are usually at the end of a driveway sometimes within sight of security cameras or doorbell cameras so if somebody pulls up to put something in a recycling bin there's a good chance it was captured on video and although they wouldn't find any more of ingrid's body parts in people's personal recycling bins i they must have missed some in somebody's recycling bin because eventually more of her body parts were found at a recycling center in Seattle and these were later confirmed to be from Ingrid. Now police would likely have a couple different theories they had to explore and they at this point they know Ingrid died of homicidal violence so let's take a look at her victimology and this is something we always talk about in these types of cases these missing persons cases is a lot of the times the answer is going to be somewhere in in the life of the person who died by homicidal violence. And in this case, Ingrid's a hardworking nurse and mother of three girls. And her riskiest known behavior is online dating. And I'm gonna talk about that at the end. I'm not blaming her at all for doing the online dating. Again, victimology just takes a look at the facts and, and assigns values to those. It's, it has nothing to do with blaming the victim for this stuff, but we just know that online dating has inherent risk to it and so that's where some level of risk is going to enter into her life but she'd seen john on several occasions so it wasn't like she was engaging in this risky online dating and meeting you know seven guys in seven days this is a guy that she'd been on several dates with to this point so basically overall i would say based on her lifestyle, she's a pretty low risk victim. The, the chance of homicidal violence in her life is, is rather low. So police are gonna need to look at all of the people in her life that may want may have wanted to do her harm. And a lot of these cases we're always gonna talk about, police are gonna look at the spouse slash boyfriend slash ex first. And in this case, there's a couple people that fit those 
those things. So first we're gonna look at the ex-husband. Um, they're always gonna be looked at in cases where there's child custody. Um, they're gonna look at, is there a history of violence in the marriage? They're gonna look at, was there jealousy? Was, was the divorce the choice of one party over the other? So is there jealousy involved that she's now dating again? And they're going to look for an alibi for the ex-husband. Was you know he had the kids the previous night, so that could be an alibi. But just because you have your children doesn't mean you can't find a babysitter or leave them with your parents. Or in the case where kids are older, I think her kids were young enough. I think they were like, I think the oldest was ten, and then there's single digits for the younger ones. So not quite old enough to leave alone, but. If you have older kids, kids aren't for sure an alibi because you can put them to bed and then you can leave the house and, and go do something and and it's not a full alibi, but police are gonna look into Philip and determine, I'm guessing there's nothing in the source material to say otherwise, so I'm gonna guess he either had a solid alibi or just based on his relationship with Ingrid, there was nothing to indicate that he was likely a suspect. Um, but that being said, he's still going to be looked at and have to be ruled out as a suspect. And part of that is because eventually when you do locate a suspect, and if this thing goes to trial, defense attorneys love to kind of throw out other suspects to see if the anything that they say will stick to the wall, per se, with the jury. So if you don't fully investigate other suspects and come up with logical reasons why they aren't viable suspects, when you get to court, all of those people that you didn't investigate are suddenly gonna become prime suspects in the eyes of the defense attorneys and they're gonna to try to sell that to the jury. So as much as some people hate it, because you'll hear people say, I can't believe I was a suspect in, in this case, it's just as important to rule out those suspects as it is to you know, focus on the main suspect because you want to eventually be able to say, no, we looked at him, he had a solid alibi, there was no violence in the marriage, it was an amicable split between the two of them, they co-parented just fine, there was no child custody or monetary issues going on. And if you can do all that and you can rule a suspect out, except it makes your other suspects that much stronger. You're going to look at the fact she had been divorced for two years. Did she have any ex-boyfriends that she dated during those two years that you know, things didn't work out between the two of them? And then there would be, again, reasons for either jealousy there or anger. Was there physical violence in one of her dating relationships with somebody in the last two years? Uh, was she threatened via email or text message? And please look for things like any restraining orders that the victim may have taken out on somebody. Uh, was she stalked? Were there reports of anything along these lines? They're going to also look at any other men that she was dating at the time that she was dating this John. Was Sometimes with online dating, people might be talking to two, three, four different people at the same time. And just because you're going on dates with one person, if the relationship isn't established, there's a chance that you've gone on a date with somebody else in that in that meantime. So did she go on a date with John the night before, but then after their date ended, she invited some other guy over to come 
hang out. There's, there's a lot of different possibilities police have to look at because you can't just hone in on the most likely suspect and ignore all other avenues of investigation. Um, you also have to look at, could this have been a burglary or home invasion gone wrong? The homicidal violence might not have anything to do with her online dating. It might just be the fact she went on a date with the guy the night before, came home, and in the middle of the night, you know, somebody broke into the house and was not expecting her to be there or whatever it might be, and things went bad, and you know she ended up being killed, and then somebody ended up trying to hide up, hide the evidence. Now there is going to be different scenarios in each of these cases. Um, you're going to be looking for different things with the the burglary or the home invasion. It's likely going to be you're looking for forced entry. You're looking for the condition of the home when they first arrived. Now remember, Philip needed uh, Jorga to come to the house to unlock the door. So we've got a secure residence, at least at the time that that they arrived in the morning. So it's not as if they came home to a door that's kicked in or a broken window. If they couldn't gain entry to the house there's a good chance that you know, suspects couldn't gain entry to the house without a key or, or something along those lines. So it's more likely she either let somebody into her home that ended up perpetrating the homicidal violence on her or somebody was already in her house. And, and like I said, off, officers are going to have to look for everything, look for the evidence of this. Now, they're also going to look at the crime itself and see whether it's appeared to be a well-planned, well-thought-out crime, or whether it seemed to be kind of a crime of panic. And in this case, with the the saw and the garbage bags being used from the home, it definitely seemed more of a crime of panic, one that somebody is trying to cover up a crime quickly and in an illogical way, because ultimately they're leaving more evidence behind than if they just, and I don't mean just and this terminology it seems bad but had just committed the homicide and then taken the body away from the home without uh, signs of dismembering it dismembering a body is usually a sign of panic of trying to find a way to get rid of something that they didn't plan on doing uh, we saw that in the case in new remain where the cook there that killed multiple women he he was dismembering them as well it's, it's usually a sign of panic so with that in mind, they've kind of ruled out everything except John Charlton. Now, police wanted to talk to him, and so eventually they locate him. He's staying with this ex-girlfriend of, of his, and he has cuts, scrapes, and bruises on his body, indicating he had been in a struggle at some point in the previous few days. When asked, he claimed that Ingrid and him went to the baseball game and then to a bar where he drank so much that he blacked out. He claims he woke up Saturday morning on a sidewalk in downtown Seattle with no idea how he got there. And when he described the area he woke up in, police recognized it as an area near where they recovered Ingrid's vehicle. Now, while looking at John's past, they found an extensive criminal history. He was charged with assault in 1997 and negligent driving in 1998. In 2006, his family took out a restraining order against him after he threatened to kill them while he was intoxicated. His parents say he was addicted to drugs and alcohol, which made him unpredictable and verbally abusive. 
On June 24, 2006, he committed an armed carjacking in Layton, Utah, just 15 miles outside of Ogden. And Ogden, if you remember, is the home of the, the hi-fi murders that we, dis we discussed. He ordered a woman and her baby out of a van and then drove away with the van. He was spotted by a police officer on a nearby interstate and was arrested soon after in a Target parking lot. He pled to attempted aggravated robbery and received a sentence of 1 to 15 years, of which he served less than two years before being released on the two-year anniversary of the crime in 2008. In 2009, he was convicted in another assault and spent time in prison for felony theft, this time doing around four years before being released in December of 2014. And even though it said he had done this felony theft, I saw in a later article that he had a history of burglary and oftentimes there's a difference between what somebody's convicted of and what they're arrested for criminal histories are often will just focus on their convictions and so there's a lot of times where a plea deal will be made as he did in his, his original arrest here where somebody might be looking at five different crimes and the worst in this case let's say is a burglary well the prosecutors don't want this to go to trial they want to just be done with this case they'll say hey we'll drop that burglary if you just plead to the felony theft and then they're if that's the case then they're going to their criminal history is going to show a conviction for felony theft not for burglary which is a lot of times what these criminals are looking for is to keep some of the more major crimes off their criminal history and so that's likely what happened here as he committed a burglary in sometime around 2009 and then was sentenced in 2010, did around four years, getting released in late 2014. And for most of 2015, it appears John was a day laborer working various cash jobs when he could find them. And he spent his nights either in shelters or at various girlfriends slash ex-girlfriends houses. And the ex-girlfriend who had taken him in the evening after Ingrid went missing stated she had known John for around a year and let him store stuff at her place. She would later say in court documents that John was a mean drunk, but claims he never physically assaulted her. And this is, I think, the reason why Ingrid wasn't real keen on telling her family about this guy is I'm sure, you know, the first thing that you're parents or family or significant others friends or whatever might ask about this person that you're dating is oh what does he do for a living does he own a house does he have children you know all this stuff because she's at this point 40 years old so she's the family likely expects her to settle down she's a successful professional as a nurse uh, making you know decent money providing a good life for her children and she's now dating this guy who's nothing wrong with being a day laborer if you're you've got a skilled trade that you can work for cash some of these guys that do construction work or uh, landscaping or whatever it might be are, are very good at what they do and it's just easier for them to do cash jobs there's nothing wrong with it but the fact he doesn't have a a stable place to stay likely doesn't have a a stable vehicle um, he's got these issues with drugs and alcohol it's probably not the person you're going to run and bring home to your parents and say look at this look at this guy i found oh yeah he's by the way he's homeless and you know he gets drunk a lot and does drugs so my guess is that that's why ingrid's family didn't know anything about this guy now john would tell police that he had 
no knowledge of the night they attended the baseball game after he blacked out. He would later say he believes that Ingrid and him had sex and then claimed she was acting weird, but he couldn't elaborate on those claims. He said that when he woke up on the sidewalk, he assumed Ingrid had driven him there and dumped him off. And it's always important to see what people are willing to admit to or what they bring up in their uh, interrogation statements. The fact that he mentioned that they had sex makes me believe he was worried about them finding DNA on Ingrid's body. And so this may have been a situation where you know, they came back after the bar and to her place and he thought he was going to be able to you know, have a physical relationship with her that evening and maybe she rejected him or told him you know, she wasn't in the mood or they weren't there yet at their relationship or whatever it might be and he loses control, sexually assaults her, then realizes he's going to go back to prison for what he did so he kills her and then in a panic dismembers the body. But if he's mentions during his statement that they had consensual sex and Ingrid obviously is not alive anymore to to verify that one way or the other if he leaves that out and then they find DNA during the the autopsy they're going to come back and with those accusations and probably level additional charges of sexual assault against him as well whereas if he says it in his initial statement he can later claim no i told you guys about that you know it was consensual and then i blacked out i don't know what happened after that so it's a way for people to diminish their crimes overall if they're willing to admit to certain things but not others to fit uh, an eventual narrative and, and despite this kind of this legal game playing he's doing he would appear in court on October 2nd, 2017 and plead guilty to murdering Ingrid and dismembering her body. Prosecutors requested he receive a 333-month sentence, which equated out to 27 years and 9 months, and the judge sentenced him to that exact sentence on January 5th of 2018. Ingrid's death was yet another case that sparked debate about the safety of the internet and more specifically online dating. Many single working parents turned to online dating as an alternative to the time-consuming, expensive, and just as dangerous bar scene, but with the ease of setting up a profile, even a fake one, it's a double-edged sword as it makes it easy for a predator to set up multiple fake profiles. The important thing is that no one except John is to blame for this incident. Too many people took to the internet to blame Ingrid after she was killed, with many people saying she took too big of a risk by online dating. But in reality, all she was hoping for was to meet someone that she could have a good time with and enjoy life with. She didn't ask to be killed, and we as a society need to stop blaming victims and start questioning how more and more of these monsters seem to be coming to light every day. So again, this was like one of those shorter cases just because there's not a trial to cover. He's going to plead guilty. Uh, I don't know how he went from I blacked out and... Think, thought I was dropped off on a sidewalk to deciding to plead guilty to this thing. It might be a difference of you know, he got 20, 27 years, and they might have been looking at you know 40 to 50 if he was convicted. So maybe it was just something where he knew the, the evidence was overwhelming that he committed this crime, and if it went to trial, he was likely going to be convicted. And in this path probably sees him, I think he was 
37 or 38 at the time of the crime. He was probably about 40 at sentencing, so he's probably going to be eligible for parole in about 20 years or so. So maybe it's something where he did the math and realized he might see the outside of a prison at 60 years old or something if he does get paroled. But if he goes to trial and loses, you know, 40 to 50 years puts him at likely not seeing the outside until 70 or 80 if he lives that long. So I guess there wasn't a whole lot to indicate why he did what he did. My guess is it's just to avoid the trial and who knows, maybe they were willing to try to, to roll the dice and take the uh, sexual assault charges to add on to the case as well and add different charges until he was looking at life in prison without parole. Because a lot of states, in a lot of states, first-degree murder is life without parole. But in other states, if you commit a sex crime that, and then commit homicidal violence to cover up the sex crime, that's an automatic life without parole situation. So maybe it was the difference of that. But ultimately, that is the uh, tragic case of Ingrid Lynn. Like I said, it, this this is one of those cases that the online safety people kind of rallied around, but ultimately, unfortunately, this can happen to too many women in too many different ways. As I said, the bar scene can be just as dangerous, although at least in that case, you're meeting the person face-to-face, but again, that might also be just as dangerous uh, because you don't have that time to get to know the person before you're alone with them and potentially the subject is some form of physical violence so but again that's the case of ingrid lynn uh, if you guys have any questions comments you can reach out to me at truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com thank you guys for listening stay tuned for future episodes uh, you can find me at true blue crime productions on facebook and support me via patreon at true blue crime productions that's it for today guys thanks for listening talk to you later goodbye